From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and I'm going to start out today by answering another one of these questions that a lot of you have. And then we're going to go from that question to something that's related but different. So let's start with something that I'm asked so much that I forget that it's a question. This is what I think any linguist who works with the public at all is used to being asked now. And for us, it's kind of a frustrating question, and I'm going to show you why. Here's the question. What has social media done to language? And I think many people are waiting for me to say that it's created some sort of harm or that it's created some sort of transformation. But, you know, if somebody asks, what has social media done to language? What has the effect been of social media on language? It's hard because the real answer to that question is the following. Nothing. Social media has done nothing to language. I mean, it depends on what you mean by language. Social media is technically a form of writing, for one thing, and there is actually no evidence that the way people write on social media affects in any significant way their written compositions for example. So to the extent that we can't help but think of language as writing, the answer is nothing, really. And then if you think about social media and how people talk, the effect, other than maybe the occasional cute expression that makes it in, but I don't think that's really what you mean, the effect is nothing. So yes, for example, I'll break the fourth wall and say that I've done a TED Talk on how wonderful the newly emergent grammar of texting is, but I wouldn't say that that affects language in a wider sense. That text ease doesn't affect how people talk. It doesn't affect how people write a composition for college. And so how has social media affected language? It's kind of like asking. I completely understand the motivation for the question because you think, well, this must have an effect on something. But it's kind of like asking, what has sushi done to food? People use language on social media. People use rice and fish to make sushi, but otherwise the rice and the fish are doing fine. So what has sushi done to food? Well, nothing really. It's just that people eat a lot of sushi and it kind of takes its place alongside all the other food. So when people ask that question, I always feel a kind of disappointment because I can't give the the crisp answer that people are waiting for. I can't talk about decline. I can't talk about improvement. But to the extent that I try to glean what you all mean by the questions you ask, what sort of answer you're waiting for, to the extent that I can give the answer, I want to give it. And so I want to say for this show that modern language is different in a certain way that is connected to social media. I think this would have happened even if there were no social media, but social media certainly encourages it, spreads it around, makes it happen faster and be more influential. And what I mean by this new flavor in modern language, although I can't give you the answer about social media specifically, could be symbolized by the theme song of the television version of Felix the Cat. This is 1959, and it is a delightful little tune. And by the way, you talk about the joys of the simple and the complex in the simple languages about that, music is about that. Try to identify, if you will, every instrument in this little jingle. That's just a little exercise. I won't revisit that challenge. But here's the Felix the Cat theme song. Felix the Cat, the 
wonderful, wonderful cat. Whenever he gets in a fix, he reaches into his bag of tricks. Felix the cat, the wonderful, wonderful cat. You laugh so much, your sides will ache, your heart will go fit a bad watch. And Felix the wonderful cat. What does that have to do? I'll let you know right now. I associate that little jingle with perfect innocence in the summer of 1975. I remember one of my friend's mothers used to let us sit on their cushiony, screened-in porch, and we would drink sweet iced tea, and we would watch Felix the Cat, and then that horrible little show, Hercules. And there it was. By the way, did you know Jack Mercer, who did Popeye, was the one doing Felix's voice. Remember Felix? Radio! <laughs> That's Felix. I'm sorry. Anyway, you see how I'm being childlike? That gives us our, our transition here. There is a new flavor in the language of adults these days, and I would call it a certain playfulness. And I have to be careful here, but it's not only playful, but there's a childlike quality to a lot of the new terms that we bring in, a lot of the expressions we bring in. It's a stronger seasoning now than I've known it to be any time recently. And it's worth exploring. Now, social media spreads new tokens of language around, and so it probably makes this more prominent. But this would have happened even if there was no social media. I think we've got one of those examples where it's hard to put your finger on it. You can't be absolutely sure. But I think that there is a connection between something that's happening in the flavor of our colloquial language and what's going on in society at large. Now, what do I mean by a childlike quality in the way we use language? Well, for example, you know that wonderful expression, because X? The weatherman decided to be more precise in his predictions because science or... Something like, we're no longer brining our turkeys because spice rubs or something like that. And so this because X business, it's wonderful. It used to give me a laugh. Now I just think of it as a way of expressing things. We're beginning to see it used in the headlines of serious publications that are trying to strike a slightly popular or demotic chord. Because science, because cooking, because anxiety, because fun. Now, if you think about it, that's a childish way of putting it. It kind of channels the kid who, when asked why he or she did something, says, well, just because. Or to say, because science. The idea is that we all know about certain aspects of science. We don't have to explain. So for shorthand, we're just going to say, because science. And it's as if we're assuming that everybody is right within our heads, which is exactly what a small child is like. That is an interesting way of putting things that I find harder to imagine arising in, say, 1988 or even 1998, really catching on. It's something that fits our times because it's one of many ways in which we play at being children in expressing sometimes even serious thoughts. Here is another one. It's the all the things business. And so a student of mine had missed a couple of classes and I kind of mock scolded her as I passed her on campus. And she said this was a couple of years ago. Oh, I've had all the illnesses. 
And I thought that was just so funny because I didn't know the meme yet. And I thought, oh, isn't that funny that she's implying that she's had every disease in the world? Ha ha. You know, very nicely <laughs> distracted me from having any other feelings about her missing classes. She's a very funny lady. And so that was the first time I heard it. And I didn't know that it was an it. But then another example recently, somebody is talking about their father, who for some reason is a bird watcher. And he said, yeah, my father has seen all the birds. And, you know, of course, he hasn't seen every single possible bird. He hasn't seen a toucan, especially since he lives in Georgia. But the idea is that he has seen an awful lot of birds. In his case, I think maybe he has seen every bird that it's possible to see in Georgia. But still, you get my point. Saying he's seen all the birds is a way of saying that he's seen a lot of birds. And this all the traces back to a blog comic of sorts from 2010. And it's called This Is Why I'll Never Be an Adult, oddly enough. And it starts with this adorable cartoon of a grown up who has these grand ambitions about what she's going to do during the day. And one of the things she says she's going to do is clean all the things. And that's a childish way of putting it, because, of course, there's so many things that you can't clean everything. It's the child who imagines that there may be seven or eight things. And that was the intended tone of this comic. And it seems to have taken off from there. So now you can talk about all the everything. And it means that you're dealing with a lot of something. But to say all the things implies that you're a child. The child has that tiny circumscribed little world where it does seem like the whole world is probably about 102 things that they can name and that they have their opinions about. And so when we use all the things in a way, we are striking a kiddish pose. And that joins the because X. So we've got because X, we've got all the things, and then there's something else. And we have visited this here before. And from the marvelous feedback that I've gotten from so many of you, I've gotten a really nice sense of the history of this Noah thing, this business of move. It's you. And I did the whole show about that and, you know, got this raft of feedback that still continues. It's wonderful. It's really allowing me to do an actual study of this term, its current distribution and its history. It's just amazing. And what I found, and it really does come from all of you, is that this Muva Noah thing traces back to the 90s and it starts with Noah. And that's something that apparently became very common, at least in the United States and possibly also in Canada. And I've even gotten some people from England how these things jumped upon. Nobody knows, but very common among kids of both genders back then. And then what seems to have happened is that as people grew up, instead of letting it go, as you know, we let go of most of the sorts of things that we say when we're that age, People started, and it started with women, because change of that kind in a language tends to start with women. Women started holding on to it, even as they grew up and became adults. It was just that one thing. Of course, it's subconscious. It's not something anybody thought about. But that is the roots of somebody in the 2000 teens when exclaiming or when they're upset or they're trying to strike a certain tone, appending that little uh. For those of you who have not been listening to Lexicon Valley since 1958, here are a couple of clips to jog your memory. This is Aubrey Plaza on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. This role was written for you by the director of the film who is your partner, right? That's right. So he says to you, honey, I have got a great idea for a part. I would like you to play a knight, an axe-wielding profane, foul-mouthed, sexually rapacious, pagan, uh, Satan-worshipping, possibly, none. And you say, 
I said, okay, what are we having for dinner? (laughs) (laughs) Something about her. Here is Mo Rocca. This is a family show, (laughs) people. Well, but kids poop too. (laughs) And while we're on it, I said that this is something that is most typically heard among women and it's also heard among gay men. And I said I had never heard a straight man do it. And from your feedback, straight boys certainly have been heard doing it. But I'm aware at this point of one grown heterosexual male who uses this. And it's something that so many of you, all the listeners have sent to me, which is a scene from the marvelous sitcom The Good Place. I've actually started watching it. And why am I saying it without the backshift? The Good Place. And this is season one, episode five. And this is Cheaty. This is um, William Jackson Harper's Cheaty. And he uses a definite uh here. Okay, well, in, in this case, it really is no big deal. Dude, you're hiding something. What's wrong? Nothing. So just maybe this guy, maybe it's only him, although I doubt it, is where this Noah jumps the rails and guys start using it. And pretty soon it's universal. Very common pattern of language change. But that uh thing is a beautiful example of a playful and or childish kind of language, which now is being used by serious adults. It's a new tincture, there's a word for you, in the language that wasn't there before. I find it harder to imagine it being used in the 80s, especially because I was there in the 80s and it wasn't used. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Here's something else. This this swole thing, this business of somebody described as being swole when they're buff, when they are well worked out in terms of musculature. Oh, look, man, you're all swole. That is utterly adorable. But it's also sillier than other terms that are taken over from black English. So, for example, ho for whore, if I may. You know, whatever you think of that, it's not silly. That wasn't the intent. That wasn't intended to capture anything particularly juvenile or woke instead of awakened. Well, woke, again, it's not supposed to be funny. But swole, that's not only a little black, it's also kiddish. So somebody's swole, that implies that they didn't work to get this musculature, but that somehow it happened all by itself. There's this haziness about the causality that created this swollenness. And once again, that's a kid. So it looks like this person who has these big muscles and the the male boobs and the abs, etc., that they blew up for some reason, like the Michelin man. That is what a small kid might think. And so you call somebody swole. It's that sort of thing. You know, I don't remember anybody saying swole in 1995, or if they did say it, They were saying it kind of quietly and indoors, but that really seems to have jumped around lately. And that's just one more example. And you can imagine I could go on of the flavor 
of things lately. So slang is universal. You know, there's slang in Shakespeare. We can be quite sure there was plenty of slang in Old English that we just have no access to because people weren't writing it down. There was slang, say, in the 1920s. And because slang was more recorded then and because we can hear people talking then to an extent, we know what a lot of the 20s slang was. And it was jolly, but not as childish. So you have some islands of kiddiness in 20s slang, like you know, the bee's knees and the cat's pajamas. But mostly it's things like flapper. That's slang, but it's not childish. You imagine somebody who's drinking a lot of liquor and you know enjoying being able to have sex before she's married without anybody having a problem with it. That, that's not childish. That's rather adult. Or you have an expression like, boy, that fella knows his onions. And <laughs> that meant that he knew a lot about something. I have no idea what onions had to do with it. But it's not childish at all. I frankly find onions quite unchildish because I find them spectacularly disgusting when raw. Not not childish. To me, the onion chopped in half and raw is, is a tragedy. And tragedy is quite adult. Or wet blanket is something that really jumps in the 20s. Yeah, that's not about a kid. You want a kid to have a nice soft blanket. Or that expression that I brought up in a previous show, be yourself, where be yourself doesn't mean be true to your nature, but rather it just means calm down. Don't get excited. Be yourself. Again, that's not about kids. That's something that adults say to each other. And so slang is one thing and slang is often playful. But there's I don't mean juvenile in a negative way, but there is a childish air to the way we're talking to one another these days. And so the question becomes, why? The answer for me cannot be, you know, what the problem is everybody is just so silly. Everybody's silly. People don't take things seriously. When I was growing up in the Depression. That sort of thing. But no, that's not the answer. Why would people be silly, especially now? And we have to remember, whatever this is, it's subconscious. Language is most interesting in what's subconscious. Just like psychology is most interesting in terms of what people do without knowing that they're doing it or without knowing their motivation. So the idea here isn't people taking a deep breath and swolling up and deciding to do something. And it couldn't be that... All of a sudden, around 2013, huge numbers of serious, interesting, intelligent people became oddly frivolous. That's not how social history works. I think it's more than that. Probably we're dealing with three things. Not all the things, just three of them. Here's one of them. I think that we are dealing, possibly, with a kind of hangover after a really nasty time, except I think that we're actually still in it. I think that there's an analog between these days and the 70s. David Frum, the columnist and author, actually did a book whose name I forget about 20 years ago, where he pointed out that there was an awful lot of willful frivolousness in popular culture and dress styles and all sorts of other things in the early 70s, and that a lot of this had to do possibly with a response to the horrors of the late 60s with all the assassinations and the Chicago Convention and so much else. And of course, Watergate was going on too. But Frum's idea, and other people have said this, is that that kind of poofy aspect of the early 70s in terms of the superficialities was a response to that sort of thing. I mean this sort of thing in case you weren't there at the time. Here was a big hit in the early 70s. This song it's called Afternoon Delight. Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some afternoon 
light My motto's always been when it's right, it's right Why wait until the middle of a cold, dark night When everything's a little clearer in the light of day And we know the night is always gonna be here anyway What the hell is that? Yeah, I loved it the first time I heard it, even though I didn't get the sexual aspect of it. But just listen to that. That was a hit song. And remember that there was serious rock by this time. But I remember sitting on hot leather seats in cars and listening to that sky rocks and flying. And even at seven or eight, I could tell that there must have been some kind of double meaning. I'm not sure I knew what an orgasm was, but I could tell something was going on. But what is that? When you get a chance, and that chance might be now, go take a look online at what the people who sang that looked like. What are they wearing? That is what the 70s was like. All sorts of things at the time. You had these wobbly animated cartoons. All of a sudden, for about five years, the way any cartoon was drawn seemed to be in this wobbly style that looked kind of like a kid had drawn it. And that was considered very chic. Typical example would be the cartoon version of Really Rosie. If you haven't taken a look, the Carol King songs alone are enough to make it. But take a look at what it looked like, which really surprised me when I got another peek at it a few years ago. Or in the slang, therefore. Think of some of the words that we started using in the 70s and how odd they would have sounded even 10 years before. Warm fuzzies. Remember that term? I'm going to give you some warm fuzzies. <laughs> Nobody would have said that in 1965, 7, 8, 9. That was 70s. Or you know, boogieing when you're dancing. What is that? A boogie, as far as I knew when I was a kid, was, was mucus. Boogieing. That's childlike. I mean, it's wonderful, but it's childlike. And if you're synesthetic, the word is pink. And there's a reason. Or the things that you call people. Yeah, you know, you are, you're a space cadet. <laughs> or somebody saying, wow, that's far out. What, what were those astro terms? All this outer space. All of that was channeling the kid named Jimmy sitting in front of his TV set in the 50s watching Captain Video. All this astro stuff. You're a space cadet. You're far out. All of this was toys. Listen to how a theme song would sound. Anybody remember Wait Till Your Father Gets Home? It was an attempt to do All in the Family as a cartoon. Truly horrid misfire of a show. Tom Bosley did the dad. Luckily, his career took off with Happy Days afterward. But get a listen to the deathly catchy theme song. But listen to how it was sung. Slightest little thing goes wrong. Mom starts to sing this familiar song. Wait till your father gets until your father gets. Wait till your father gets home. Dad's not so bad and he seldom gets mad. And we aren't about to desert him. Kids today like to have their own way. And what daddy doesn't know won't hurt him. I think my mom's just swell. But she starts to yell. Every time we have a plot, just wait till your father gets, until your father gets, wait till your father gets home. See what I mean? Wait till your father gets home. We know. 
So that's the early 70s. Clearly, those were people who were letting it all hang out, as they said, as a response to something awful. Well, think about today. We've had Iraq. We've had Afghanistan. We've had the recession of 2008. And then social media comes in and polarizes the country in ways that we haven't seen for a very long time. And then if I didn't mention the president, then you'd know I was thinking of him. And so I just did. And now we have these environmental catastrophes. The planet is probably not going to exist in two weeks. We are living under a kind of fear. And I'm aware that really at most times people are afraid. You look at pictures of people posing in nice clothes and you play the happy songs and you think that people were ecstatic. But no, this is not the first time in America that people have felt like something really ghastly was afoot. However, I do think that we live in one of the times that's rather extreme. Things feel a lot like they seem to have felt to adults around the time of Watergate. And so could that possibly be why our language is taking on a childish air? After so many of the things that we read about in the news these days, and God, that sounds punditesque, but I must admit I really believe it. I feel like part of us is playing with language more than we ordinarily would just because there is so much to be unhappy about in the larger sense. So that's one thing. Another thing that might create this cherishing of childlike ways of putting things is actually a result of a kind of sophistication that's happening in other ways. And what I mean by that is that in much of our slang, our other kinds of slang and new expressions, there's an awareness of the complexity of ideas and ideals and points of view that we mark in language that we didn't do so much before. So, for example, the new like. To say, well, this is like the only way to do it, There were like grandparents and grandkids in there or let's like really get down to business. I like thought that I would vote for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I love her, by the way. But I like thought I would vote for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. All of those likes may sound hesitant and self-hating, but they can actually be viewed as a way of saying this is how I feel, although I know that you may feel differently and justifiably so or so as we talked about quite recently, that so is a nice little nod to what was said before, before you launch into talking about how Facebook isn't as bad as you might think. You launch into talking about how octopuses have brains in their arms or something like that. And so there's a complexity, but that means that if we are now, even though it's subconscious, acknowledging all of this complexity spontaneously when we talk, it might be that kidness that childishness feels like it gets to a reality, it gets to an essence, that it cuts through all this complexity that we feel like we're always up against and kowtowing to and acknowledging. Maybe that can be a little exhausting. And so all these kid things allow us to just get back to basics because we feel like, to an extent, the blank slate of children's minds is a kind of truth. They have a pathway towards what is real, what's essential, that maybe we lose as our brains get all gunked up with the hideousness of reality. And so just maybe because there's this new politeness, because in some ways we are more more heedful of other points of view, even in our spontaneous casual conversation. I believe that to be the case now. I think we sound different today than our equivalents would have 100 years ago. I did a piece, frankly, in the New York Times about this, and that's not a humble brag because I don't think many people read it, but I meant it if you want 
to read me fleshing it out more carefully. There's a new kind of politeness, but it might mean that the childishness is a way of relaxing a little bit. Or third and final, I think, well, you know, I don't think this, this, this is real. Young people today have a different relationship to adulthood than they used to. There's actually a study in the International Journal of Behavioral Development that shows that over the past four decades, young people's relationship to adulthood, their desire to grow up, their feelings about what it is to grow up, what that will be like, have become more negative decade by decade by decade. People are less interested in becoming a fedora wearing, I'm going to make that a unisex fedora, but a fedora wearing person. You kind of want to stay a kid. The idea of being an adult, for example, is sometimes sarcastically referred to as adulting, which is also kind of childlike in a way. But notice the idea that, oh, well, I was adulting. Nobody would have said that in, say, 1976, despite popping the gum and using condoms and calling people far out. Nobody was talking about adulting. And I think that that's part of what's going on in the culture. We have a very different sense of these things. So, for example, because it is time for another musical clip, let's go to Peter Pan. This is 1954. This is the Broadway version with Mary Martin. And the song is, a lot of you can guess if your parents made you watch this as you were growing up as they made me. Yeah, my made me. I, I didn't. I didn't get it. My mother, for some reason, we watched this twice on TV, I remember. And both times my mother made this I love my mother's cooking generally, but she made this sickening vanilla shake. And I don't remember why, but I really hated it. And she made it both years. And there was this ritual that we would watch Mary Martin and Peter Pan and sip this vanilla concoction. So to this day, I have a hard time with Peter Pan. But this is I Don't Want to Grow Up. I won't grow up. I won't grow up. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. Just to learn to be a parent. Notice, though, that that then was considered unusual. Of course, Billy is watching Captain Video while he's watching TV, but he's going to grow up and put on a fedora and become Don Draper and, you know, die depressed in a hotel room. And he's looking forward to it. But today that I don't want to grow up almost seems normal. Why would it be? You know, what are these adult coloring books? You know, wonderful. I've got one. I'm not saying I'm not part of this, but still adult coloring book. Don Draper did not color. Yet today we do have a situation where, for one thing, the recession of 2008 has given a sense that you're going to go out and get a good job immediately. Well, maybe not. And so, of course, maybe you won't want to grow up and you don't have to go live in your parents' basement to still have a feeling that becoming an adult to do this thing called adulting doesn't look so attractive because you might lose your job. There might not be a job you can imagine that you're going to get. And then maybe there's also helicopter parenting. Hard to say. But the idea that children are always watched over by their parents might delay the time that children are ready to go out on their own and feel that as a natural step. When I was a little kid, starting from the age of seven, I spent my weekend days running around in the tranquil streets of Mount Airy. And, you know, all the mothers would call their kids in for lunch and then for dinner. And that's what we did. 
Today, in that same neighborhood, people have playdates, and it's all completely different, and the neighborhood hasn't changed a bit. That's normal. That's the big change in America. And maybe that has something to do with changing people's relationship to becoming a Don Draper. But what it means is that perhaps in the language of young people today, there's going to be a strain of this identification with the child rather than with the aging, frustrated person in therapy. You might almost predict that people would be mining that aspect of things as they colored the language as they moved along. That's my three or four cents on this. It's an interesting flavoring in the language. And I'll bet some people, I don't know how many people are consciously aware of it, but it probably irritates some people. And it's the sort of change in language that leads people to ask questions like, well, what is social media doing to language? And I don't think social media is causing this, although it certainly can help spread it around. But I think that a lot of it can be connected to something like this music. You recognize what that is? That's the theme song to a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. And to me, that sounds like kids feeling ambivalent about growing up. Why does it sound like that to me? Not just because it was about the Peanuts kids, but listen to those bittersweet chords and the angular changes. And then there's a kind of a revelish doodly thing that Guaraldi does there. So that sounds like what I imagine it might feel like to be a young person these days. Growing up is hard, and you'd rather not do this adulting thing. In any case, in the scientific sense, what this ties into is that kids and teens often are the center of language change. So when I say that women change language, what I really mean is young women. When I say it jumps the rails to men, it's first probably going to be young men. So kids and teens start it. But here, not only are they doing new things, but it seems that they are subconsciously reaching backwards. They're mining earlier ways that they express themselves or holding on longer to ways that they express themselves in the past. And, you know, I, I like this. I can honestly say that I don't think that it's just a bunch. Of no, it, it, it's a bunch of fun. It's far out, <laughs> man. I think it's fun. I think it's funny. I've had all the illnesses. <laughs> That's just great. I think it's dynamic. I don't know what the hell dynamic means, but I figured I was supposed to use that word. But I think that it really does just enrich things. Why not have variety? It's not as if young people are walking around talking like kids. It's that they're taking a kind of kiddishness and sprinkling the language with it. Plenty of other things that people are saying that some of which I've talked about on this show that are certainly talked about on other podcasts about language and everything else are quite adult. In fact, most things we're talking about a seasoning, but this new realm where we don't only talk like adults, but to strike a certain chord, we can talk like somebody six or seven years old. I'll take it. It's great because there is art 
in the unformed. There is art in, dare I say it, the semi-coherent. And so it's not only, you know, how somebody got swole, but think about this. I remember it's the early 70s. I think I'm eight years old and on the radio all the time was one of the most wonderful songs I had ever heard. I thought this was genius then. I couldn't have put it in so many words, but I just found it bracing from beginning to end. I knew this was something special. And to this day, I think that this is one of the weirdest, most wonderful songs ever written. And you'll know what it is from just hearing this one first chord. That's Benny and the Jets. Damned if I know the words now. And yet it doesn't matter. I have my sense of what it's about. And the music is so frighteningly good that I just love it. I don't need it to make sense. Benny and the Jets. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com to listen to past shows, of which they're beginning to be quite a few. So you can listen to a lot of past shows and subscribe or just to reach out. Go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. This show was edited, as always, by Mike Volo, who, with Bob Garfield, was the host of the previous rendition of the show. And then that's followed up by Ones With Me. And I'm John McWhorter. And the professor... And rock bottom. I know only some of you will get that, but I am yearning for 1975. By the way, some of Felix is on DVD, believe it or not, and I can personally attest that your smaller children will eat it up with a spoon. Benny and the